0: Hello and welcome to Riding Unicorns, the podcast about growth startups. I'm James Pringle and my co-host is Hector Mason from Episode 1 Ventures. This week we have Alice Bentink from Entrepreneur First On. Alice co-founded EF with Matt Clifford and it's one of the UK's most successful accelerator programs. They partner highly skilled and talented tech people together to solve big issues and problems and has gone on to create some amazing businesses. So without further ado, let's bring in Alice.
1: Hi, Alice, and welcome to Riding Unicorns. Great to have you on the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I wonder if we could start off with hearing a bit about your background and and where you started and how you got to where you are today.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's reasonably short, seeing as most of my career has been Entrepreneur First. So I did a uh, management degree at Nottingham many moons ago. And then when I left, I joined McKinsey as a um, management consultant and met my co-founder, Matt Clifford there. And after two years at McKinsey, we left and started Entrepreneur First, which Uh, It's our 10th birthday, I think in a week or two weeks time. So yeah, the majority of my career, the majority of my growing up has all been done um, at Entrepreneur First.
1: Super interesting. Very, very concise. It's interesting that you, just after a short stint in consulting, and as far as I can see from um, your LinkedIn, you didn't have entrepreneurial experience. How come you ended up thinking, let's build a, let's build EF, let's start matching entrepreneurs And, and perhaps tell us a bit about what EF is as well.
2: Yeah, sure. So maybe I'll start with what EF is and then move on to the second part. So Entrepreneur First is a talent investor. And so if you think about accelerators, where they invest in teams with ideas and, well, they invest in companies, we invest one stage earlier. So we find incredible individuals who have found a potential. And it's typically before they've even founded a company. Maybe they've might have founded some small things in the past, but Typically, it's before they have a co-founder and before they have an idea. And really, the only thing that we're selecting on is, do they have the behaviours and abilities that we've seen, having worked with 3,000 people across the world, do they have that potential to be a globally important founder? So we've been running in London for, for 10 years, and about four years ago, we started expanding across both um, Europe, Asia, and North America. Uh, so we now work with 700 founders a year, and we invest in a couple of ways. We give people money to join the programme, so you get a stipend to actually go through the very early stages of the program. And then once you've built a team and developed an idea, we then invest, that we then uh, maintain that investing relationship as, as the company grows. But we really see ourselves as a, as a talent investor. We have this methodology that means we can turn a hundred strangers into co-founding pairs within just eight weeks, which is really the bit that, that everyone thought was slightly crazy when we first started. Although actually episode one had been amazing back of the essence the very beginning, which we're very grateful for. But I suppose, how did did I end up running Entrepreneur First? Um, Matt and I, I suppose, did what lots of ambitious people do. And we often get asked, why doesn't the UK have a Google? And it's like, well, Larry and Sergey probably would have done what the most ambitious people do in the UK, which is they would have gone, right, okay, so I can go into finance, consulting, law. You know, they would have been, they would be high performers in a hedge fund. That's the the ambition status quo. And I think Matt and I became consultants because it seemed like what ambitious people did, it was the the peer and parent approved career path that, that made sense. Didn't mean we necessarily wanted to be lifetime management consultants. That wasn't the aspiration. But as we've expanded across the world, it's interesting to see how your career aspirations are so culturally dependent. You know, we've been in Singapore now for four years and in Singapore, the number one thing you can do is join the government. Their most aspirational job is to join the government. So all their best people join the government or um, their most ambitious people join the government. And I suppose really the, the first part of EF was saying the world is missing out on some of its best founders. There are all these amazing, talented, ambitious individuals who could be great founders, but they A, don't know it's possible. And then B, there isn't an ecosystem or infrastructure that can support them to become founders. So we spent the very early days of EF going out to campuses. So I'm going to Cambridge and um, being so surprised how many people wanted to be a founder. Like if you said to somebody, hey, do you wanna be a founder? Do you wanna create your own company? The answer would be yes. And then immediately the next thing would be, but, and the but would be one of two things either, I don't have anyone to work with, I don't have a co-founder, I don't have a team, or I don't know what I'm going to work on, I don't know what a good idea looks like, or I've got lots of ideas, but how do I pick which one? And so really, we designed Entrepreneur First to solve those problems, you know, how can we help extract the best and brightest from um, these traditional well-worn career paths how can we make sure that entrepreneurship is seen as the most desirable um and uh, kind of high reward career path out there and then how can we make sure that they've got the environment and infrastructure to find a co-founder develop an idea and get access to funding
1: i think the companies that you've invested in now have created is it over two billion pounds or dollars of enterprise value so uh
2: it's four and a half billion dollars and, but it's, it's going up all the time. So we we had a unicorn uh, announced two weeks ago, which was Tractable, which is an amazing story of two basically fresh graduates. Alex, the CEO, had, I think, one year's work experience. Razvan, the CTO, was straight out of his master's at Cambridge. And they've built one of the biggest computer vision companies in the world working on insurance tech. Uh, and really that, you know, Alex and Razvan had never met each other before they joined EF. Alex... It was very clear that he wanted to be a founder, Razvan was kind of on the fence, but they met each other on the very first event we did for EF and basically immediately decided to work together and combined their backgrounds of Razvan having worked with one of the best computer um, vision professors in the world, Zubin Garamani, and Alex having spent a bit of time at Rocket Internet and tried to find things in the past, but also having done a computer science conversion course at Imperial um and they've just been on the most incredible journey and and are building a very very exciting company that is transforming how insurance works and Geico the biggest insurance company in the US is now now one of their customers so it's it's super exciting to see
0: yeah I actually met Alex very briefly years ago when he just started and We were at an AI conference and all the VCs were like bees around a honeypot with him. It was amazing to see. I was thinking, what a founder looks like. (laughs) That's really cool. And what, apart from founder matching, what other support do founders get? Because do, do you guys offer branding and design support? Because all of the companies come out of EF looking like amazing businesses with really slick websites and everything. So what else do you offer beyond founder matching?
2: And that's very kind. We, we don't offer branding and design support. Um, they, they need to make it up as they go along on that side. So the, the key the key parts is the founder matching is, is basically 90% of the value we provide. James, you, you, you're a founder. How did you find your co-founder in the past?
0: LinkedIn, which wasn't particularly successful. <laughs> but more recently, my fiance launched a company and we found a co-founder for her just through network and personal recommendation, which has... I think probably the most common route at the moment, beyond a kind of formal matching service. I, mean, I thought like, you are gonna. I thought you were gonna say you found your fiance on LinkedIn. <laughs> no, that was Bumble. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but this is this, I think, is a great analogy. That I found my husband on OkCupid okay ten years ago, and I remember tra- taking him home to my, meet my parents and asking him to lie about how we met because it, it felt really weird to say I'd met someone on the internet. And now it's become the default way it's now the most um common way somebody meets their spouse and i think what we're seeing is co-founding is going to go through the same process of at the moment finding a co-founder is incredibly time consuming and it's incredibly messy because okay you meet one person that could be a potential co-founder it's taking you months to find them and then even if they're not right you kind of don't want to let them go because you've got no other options what online dating did was very similar um in that it created a supply and pool of liquid people that you could and potentially match with, go out with, marry, whatever it is. And so largely the beauty of EF is that we, you know, we get about 15,000 applications a year. We screen that down into the final 700 that join our programs across the world. And so every person that you're interacting with has been screened for their founder potential is committed to start a company right now. Um, and so we see an 80% pairing rate across all our sites. So 80% of people that join us find a co-founder. So that really is the majority of the value that we provide. Um, alongside that we do a huge amount of support around idea development it's pretty hard to know what a good idea looks like Um, and what you read on TechCrunch um, or whatever is your preferred uh, source of news um, often the stories that founders have to spin about where their ideas come from make it very hard for nascent founders to understand how to come up with an idea everyone has this amazing backstory about like how it happened which may or may not be true um, and so a lot of the work we do is helping people go from maybe a collection of thoughts or insights, and actually, how do you turn this into, into a differentiated, high growth, venture-backable idea? And I think because we have such an experienced team, we can very help quickly help people sort through the ideas that we've seen a million times, the ideas that just aren't fundable for various reasons, but also helping people understand the trade-offs. Like, we see a lot of people that want to work on hardware ideas. now. There are an amazing selection of hardware ideas out there that you need to understand the cost and trade-off of building a hardware idea versus a software idea. Ultimately, you're going to experience significant dilution, huge operational difficulties. Uh, and um, ultimately you need to be, I think the, the bar for hardware founders is much higher. And so just helping people understand some of these things that for us as investors are kind of very basic, but actually it's very hard to get access to that in the um outside world. And then we do all the other, you know, things of like we have an amazing community. We have uh, a selection of mildly trendy offices, but not super trendy offices in London. We're in an old biscuit factory. We have demo days. We have an amazing investor network. One of the bits that our founders love is that at demo day we organise post demo day, basically four weeks of meeting investors. So the investors, well, pre COVID used to come to the to our office. They would meet eight startups a day, and so our Best startups would be meeting 30, 40 investors over a four-week period. So very quickly, we'd be able to get their round done.
1: Now, how easy is it to copy the model and replicate it in new geographies? Is, do you see lots of differences and different kinds of talent or you know, cultural nuances that have to be taken into account when you launch in new, new geographies?
2: I thought you were going to ask um, whether competitors have copied it we've been very surprised how easy it is for us to copy and paste into new geographies. What's been interesting is watching other people try to replicate the model and really struggling with the co-founder bit. But for us, we wondered as we moved our first international site was Singapore, which culturally obviously is, is reasonably different to the UK. It's amazing to see that we haven't had to do a huge amount of localization on who we select, what we deliver, how we do co-founder matching. And if you look at the stats They're very similar across cohorts. So conversion to finding a co-founder is very similar. Conversion to being funded is very similar. It's kind of crazy. I'm always surprised by how little localization is required. The one thing that we have seen as a difference is different cultural approaches to having difficult conversations. So there are very strong cultural norms around conflict aversion, uh, and it varies hugely across all of our sites. You know, We're in Toronto, London, Paris, Berlin, Singapore, Bangalore. And so one of the things that we've had to work quite hard on is creating an EF cultural norm about how to have difficult conversations with your co-founder. In London, we found that if people weren't visibly getting on, it was a kind of a clear flag. Actually, there's a bunch of um, EF locations where people seem to be getting on, but under the surface, there's like, <laughs> bad things are happening, they actually don't want to work together. And so creating frameworks and spaces for people to have really difficult, challenging conversations, particularly challenging conversations for their cultural norm, has been part of how we've made EF work across so many different places.
1: So that's a really nice segue into what what are the challenges that most frequently crop up with putting two people who have barely only just met each other into suddenly co-founding a business with one another?
2: So one of the interesting things is that um, people have eight weeks to form a team on EAF, but the majority of people find their co-founder in the first week. So it's amazing how quickly it works. Um, and one of the big challenges is helping people understand that they aren't looking for a friend. They're looking for a business partner. And I think co-founder, you know, you, you watch the social network. Actually, they weren't great friends on social network. But it's kind of like you think of co-founders like best buddies. Ultimately, you're looking for somebody who you're going to give half of your business to. You know, this is one of the most expensive transactions you'll ever make in your life. Um, and so that person doesn't just need to be a great buddy. They need to be able to deliver on the stuff that you guys need to make this business successful. So they need to be complementary to you in terms of skills. Um, they need to be aligned with you in terms of mission and beliefs and values. Um, and I think one of the lar- the most common mistakes we see people make is that they avoid having the tough conversations with their co-founder. Um, they go to the topics that are easy, where they align. Um, So it could be on shared interests or or whatever it may be. But often you'll see founders avoid talking about ideas. Um, And one of the common mistakes we see is where you get two people who are like, I found the perfect co-founder. This is, you know, blood brothers, blood sisters, great, let's go for it. And you're like, cool, what are you gonna work on? They're like, oh, well, we, we haven't come up with an idea. And then a couple of days later, you're like, what are you going to work on? I'm like, oh, well, actually, you know, um, Hector's really interested in this and James is really interested in this. But, you know, we'll find something in the middle. We'll find something in the middle. To me, that's just a really strong indicator of people who should be friends, but shouldn't build a company together. If you can't align on an idea, if you're compromising on a on a sort of a smash together idea that's a compromise of the two things that you guys believe and care in, it's, it's not the right thing. Um, and so part of my team's job working with these founders is to be able to flag where we see inconsistencies and um, potential uh, trouble down the line, um, and then help those teams to break up. Like a large part of our co-founder matching process is actually just getting people to test each other. And then when it doesn't work, getting them to break up. And because there's such low switching costs, you know, there's a pool of other people to co-found with, the breakups are very seamless. They're very unemotional. And um, and people on average try about two and a half teams during the eight week period, um, but with a, a heavy chunk of them finding the right team very quickly. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a bizarre, it's a bizarre, but highly managed process that uh, gets great outcomes.
0: And Alice, I mean, you're a founder yourself. So you, you said you're coming up to the 10 year anniversary. But when you and Matt started EF, what was kind of the first big win and what was the sort of hustly bit like? What were you doing? Were you... How were you getting access to talent? Because it's a bit of a flywheel as well. Once you have some success, you get more applications, which means quality of candidates gets better and so on and so forth. But at the beginning, it must have been harder. So how did you get started? What was the first big win and where were you kind of searching for this amazing talent?
2: We say it is the EF's 10th birthday, as in I left McKinsey 10 years ago um, this August. But really, EF took about three years to get going. So EF was a not-for-profit for for the first three years. Um, As in, like, not by accident, we were registered. We were just not making money. We were registered not-for-profit. And we really just had no idea what we were doing. And um, everyone was saying, you know, this this process is impossible. You can't take strangers and turn them into co-founders. And um, they were kind of right in the early days. We really, really struggled. What was interesting, though, was that we never struggled with talent. So, the process was such a slog, but talent was really easy. So, we spent three months recruiting our first cohort. We went to every university in the UK, spent the first couple of months just living on um, virgin trains going up north. It used to make me feel so unbelievably sick. I used to absolutely hate it for going to Edinburgh or Manchester or um, wherever it may be. And we got 400 applications in three months. And a large chunk of them were um Unusual, but there were 34 absolute superstars in there. And um, I think a third of our first cohort came from Oxford, Cambridge, or Imperial. For our second cohort, a third of computer scientists at Cambridge applied to join EAF. So actually, the talent flywheel was surprisingly easy. There was just so much latent demand for this. The challenge then was okay, well, what are we going to do with them? And we didn't have any money, which was also a bit of a challenge. So we were trying to get funded by corporate sponsorship and um, the the challenge we tried to incorporate as a charity originally but apparently turning kids that have been to university into millionaires is not particularly charitable so the charities commission said no to that so then we were trying to get kind of csr budget to to fund you know the next generation of entrepreneurs and broadly we could get companies to pay us 25k once but just we didn't give them anything in return so that was kind of it and having that kind of dual customer Really didn't work. So trying to like please the corporate sponsors, give them a product, make their investment worthwhile, and please our cohort just just didn't work. So the first three years of EF were a bit of a mess. And after the second cohort, Matt and I were basically like, "Look, I'm not entirely sure if this is the right way to spend our lives. Like, we're super ambitious. There's tons of amazing things we could do. Let's do one more cohort. Let's just see how it goes." And the third cohort is when we really hit our stride. That's when Tractable was formed, our first unicorn, and one of the good leading indicators we had was how many of our early companies went to YC, uh, Y Combinator. So 20% of our first two cohorts went to Y Combinator. Um, and actually that was one of our hacks early on was we basically sold EF as like, Hey, do you want to go to YC? Cool. Come to <laughs> come to EF, um, which I'm not incredibly proud of. We ran an amazing event called EF meets YC where there was no one from YC there, um, apart from uh, some of our founders who had been to Y Combinator. And um, that was probably our best attended event. Super competitive. Everyone wanted to come. That so was definitely uh, pretty hacky. But I mean, the first three years were like a huge amount of schlep. Everyone telling us we were wasting our time. And really the only indicator being that people wanted to do this. Our customer really wanted to do this. And if we could just make it work, if we could just work out how to get people into teams and get them funded, there was something there. Um, so yeah, it was um, in some ways the first three years of f were way more stressful than the subsequent years because and it, we see this with our founders now the dread of oh my god am I wasting my time am I an actual idiot is this am I being delusional and I think it's so hard for founders because sometimes they think founders are delusional and they are wasting their time but it's such a fine line
1: and now that the flywheel really is spinning and you know very many people know about EF, and it's very so many easy. people. <laughs> very many people want to apply to EF. Um, do you? How do you manage those applications? Do, are you? Are you using technology now to prioritize and score applications or applicants? And are you using technology to scrape LinkedIn and scrape university websites for for sourcing candidates? How does tech come into what you do?
2: One of our big decisions as a company was to work out whether we are a tech first company or whether we're a tech enabled company and I think there were some amazing programs out there I don't know if you guys know Pioneer which is very much kind of like a tech first um program sort of similar to EF in some ways and it's like helping very early stage founders but I think the beauty of EF is people you've got to get the right people in the room and they've got to be in the room to to meet and match with each other so when it comes to applications we do all of the screening manually um, and You might be like, why? And it's because if you look at our selection criteria, there's some stuff that we could screen for. So like, um, we like smart people and... the people who who go to top tier universities typically perform best on EF and we've experimented with lots of different um types of university but that does look like a very strong um indicator of success so maybe we could automatically screen for people who have or haven't been to those universities but that's just one very small criteria and um, we look at ability and behavior but that's in our ability bucket so ability is um smart and skilled and then on behavior some ways the behavior criteria are way more important um, in terms of looking at final outcomes and so the application basically has a bunch of questions where you have to outline ways things that you've done in the past and we're looking for certain certain things in that um i'm sure maybe in the future we could do this in a more tech enabled way but there is such nuance in evaluating those applications and understanding the individual and seeing how the various component parts go together and we've tried to, to work out like okay well if someone's spiking on this criteria how many other criteria are they allowed to crash on etc etc but it is so candidate specific um so we we do all the application screening manually um, and all the interviewing as well in in uh in person when it comes to the top of the funnel um we do have a bunch of methods to reach out to a bunch of people find top performers at university um but again this is a human process we're not a software company um the best candidates who are most in demand not from like other entrepreneurial things but just most in demand for various other career paths they want and need the bespoke touch so even if you find them in a highly scalable way ultimately the outreach needs to be bespoke tailored and very human
1: yeah it's interesting i mean i i think exactly the same thing is happening in, in in vc more more generally you know it's the very best people there's almost a sort of negative selection if you kind of automate outreach to people the ones you hear back from are probably going to be overweight the the less impressive ones and so it's just human in the loop loop is always going to be needed yeah um, no very interesting so what what is the end goal for ef you know the, there's so much going on in the ecosystem at the moment and um i i don't know if you've heard of um the seed stage which is an initiative that i run which is basically a demo day without the accelerator um, and then obviously there are things like YC, there are things like EF. And I think EF is really uh, nicely placed in that it does serve a, a different purpose to a typical accelerator. But what sort of excites you about that very, very early stage landscape and, um, and what's going on there?
2: The London ecosystem has grown and changed so much since we started 10 years ago. Um, and it's amazing to see so many people's journeys through it as well, as in people that I knew as founders 10 years ago, then became angel investors and now are running their own VCs. And like the the flywheel in London, it's, it's, it's going and it's great. What excites me is seeing other ecosystems go through that same development process. We've been in Singapore for quite a while and seeing it go through the same process of, okay, you're beginning to see the seed VC ecosystem grow. You're beginning to see more people see founding as a, aspirational path rather than an alternative path. But realistically, the world is still missing out on, on many of its best founders, purely based on access to opportunity. And so for EF, it it means making sure that we are accessible to as many of those founders as possible. And there are different ways we can do that, but we're not done, we're not done with international expansion.
1: Yeah, I think it's it, it's such an interesting topic because what, what you said earlier about you know the best candidates typically come from the top universities is you know undoubtedly true but i wonder how much of that is to do with as you go down the down the funnel to kind of raising series a or seed or series b round how much of that is actually embedded in the bias of those investors and so you kind of you know i.e. those investors look to which universities the founders have been to and they love the ones who've been to oxbridge and so that means that you guys end up having to select people from oxford cambridge whichever other unis Um, in order to to get great results i wonder how how long it will take and how you can get to a point where you truly are selecting the best candidates from anywhere in the world regardless of education and based purely actually on you know talent raw talent
2: yeah and i suppose this is where um, so when we screen application the behavior part is way more than the ability part so Yes, we do get lots of people who happen to be from those universities, but what we're looking for is the way that they've behaved in the past. So to give you an example, one of the guys that I interviewed recently, what we look for is Drive to Achieve, Challenging Convention and uh, Followership. Those are our kind of behaviours that we're looking for. So these sort of outlier behaviours. Anyway, this guy had been part of the GB Great Britain Olympic athletic squad doing hurdles as a teenager. He then got very injured and the last minute had to apply to university, got into Imperial, did physics, um, graduated top of his class in physics from Imperial, while at the same time he got into electronic dance music and produced a track that was then sampled by Neo, one of the biggest EDM musicians in the world. Like, just his ability to, or his behaviour of, like, just doing so much stuff, challenging convention of going from a sporting background to an academic background, like his level of achievement, that's way more important than the university that he went to. But I think, unfortunately, there is so much ingrained bias in VC. And I think one of the positive things that we're seeing is just the increasing diversity of venture capitalists, particularly lots of funds doing a big push on women at the moment, which is, is amazing. But there's lots of work still to go. So yeah, it's... Uh, I think making sure that we get the very best founders regardless of background is so important because founding is one of the most um, wealth generative things that you can do and in some ways it should be one of the most democratic ways to access unprecedented wealth and I think it's very unpopular right now to talk about like founding as a way of generating wealth but I think it's important to talk about it because wealth equals power. If we have founders who only come from certain backgrounds, certain genders, certain ethnicities, it does mean that the power is kept with a very small group of white privileged men.
1: Fascinating. I I completely agree on the point about interesting backgrounds uh, being really highly valued. I saw someone the other day and reached out, a guy, he'd was he done something, then he became a policeman, really young guy in his 20s, became a policeman, was a detective, I think, then became a software engineer at Starling and has now founded a like sustainable fitness business. And I just love seeing those kinds of founders. I'm like such a rounded individual, so many interests. And yeah, I'm, I'm sure he'll do well.
2: It's, it's people who do lots of horizontal moves rather than just doing the kind of vertical. If someone applied to EF who had, I don't know, done 10 years in an institution that was very highly rated and was you know the highest performer in that institution, I don't know, I'm not particularly interested in that.
0: Yeah and Alice if we come back to you a bit more as a person like what motivates you personally and how does that tie in with the sort of grander vision for what you want Entrepreneur First to represent?
2: I mean I feel very lucky that the business that I happened to found just has this enduring mission so our mission is to transform the lives of the world's most impactful people and it's a really hard mission to fulfill and it's an enduring mission in that My job is to find amazing people and help them realize their potential and, and to do that in a kind of hugely scalable way across the world. And I just can't imagine being excited by anything else. There's so much that EF can do and already has done. And when you look at the impact that our businesses are having, particularly because the kind of founders that we see coming through now, they want to have some sort of positive impact. So if you look at Tractable, for example, okay, it's an insurance tech company, like what good could it do in the world? Well, they have saved as many cars from scrapping as Tesla produced last year, which is an Im- incredible environmental benefit of an insurance tech product. And seeing our, as part of my career, being able to enable these kind of people, I mean, it's just super cool. I feel very, very lucky.
1: It's absolutely brilliant. Well, it's been it's been awesome having you, Alice. But before you go, we would love to ask you, if you had a business lunch, which three people they can be whoever would you ask to a business lunch
2: okay um so i would have and i assume lots of people say this i think elon musk is the great inventor of our time um so i'd have elon musk i would have kate bingham who is the woman that sourced the vaccine for the uk and who has done the most incredible piece of work for the united kingdom um and in pretty difficult circumstances and I think she is a bit of an unsung hero who I would love to hear more from uh, and then feeling inspired by the Olympics I would love to have Simone Biles as well who I think is the most inspirational athlete um, and I think that would probably be quite a random combination of people and maybe brilliant things would happen.
1: I think for sure yeah that sounds like a, it sounds like a great lunch. Well Alice thanks so much on for, for coming on the show we've dug into so many things it's been brilliant hearing about in you know, a how you select founders, how you expand globally, similarities between EF and and, and dating, all sorts of things. So it's been fascinating to hear. And yeah, thanks for coming on the show.
2: A real pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: And Alice, just before, is there applications open at the moment or is there anywhere we can direct people that want to get involved?
2: Yeah, great. Do go to joinef.com. Applications are always open for one of our sites around the world and we would be delighted to see any of you apply
0: great. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to Riding Unicorns. Please do engage with us on LinkedIn or Twitter. On Twitter, it's at Riding Unicorns underscore. And on LinkedIn, you
0: can just search for Riding Unicorns. Don't forget to sign up to our Substack to get episodes direct to your inbox every Wednesday. Go to ridingunicorns.substack.com. Please also like and subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. Look out for the next episode.